today, I want to start to talk about a series of lectures on the subject of the encounter of Judaism and modernity. Modernity is not just a chronological designation. It is a content designation. That means there's something very special, unique, distinctive about modernity that we should pay attention to. And modernity created a new situation for the Jewish people. As you all know, the Middle Ages, though we haven't talked about it, I'm sure you've talked about it in other contexts, and all of you have had a lot of Jewish education, so I presume you know all the detail of the terrible medieval period, the pogroms, the massacres in the Rhineland during the Crusades, the ghettoization, the destructive Christian theological stereotypes, which essentially made Jews into somewhat inhuman characters. For example, medieval theology, medieval culture believed that Jewish men menstruated. Just don't get nervous, we don't do that anymore. Uh, but that Jewish men menstruated and the only way that they would stop that was by baptism. Or that Jews had a special stink, it was called the Jewish smell. And that's why Jewish women wore so much perfume. And the only way that could be overcome was by baptism. And the inhuman characterizations of Jews with tails, special kind of inhuman feet, all of these were the outcome of a long process of dehumanization, of diabolization, of terrifying images of the Jew as a worshiper of the devil, an ally of the devil, a satanic force. Now, as you know, in modernity, that idea will, in one side of modernity, I should say, will break down. The dominant side of modernity, that idea will break down. It will not break down without opposition. It will not break down without all kinds of countercurrents. And of course, the ultimate countercurrent will be the Holocaust, where again, Jews were pictured as satanic creatures, inhuman, subhuman. But between the end of the Middle Ages and the 20th century, there is a remarkable development of ideas, of cultural phenomena that affect Jews, and which I'd like to talk about starting today. The first thing I would note, besides the backdrop of this terrible medieval period, is, of course, the end of feudalism. And I'll come back to talk about that in a detailed way in a moment. But by the end of feudalism, I mean an arrangement where everybody was locked into a specific political and social place in the hierarchy, and that the economy was based on land, and the politics were based on kingship. Now, these things start to be readjusted, reconsidered, in a variety of ways, beginning in the 15th century and in the 16th century. Let me start uh, in the 15th with the Renaissance. All of you have been, I'm sure, to Florence and Venice, and you know all about the Renaissance. But you probably think of it, as most people do, in connection to artistic creativity. And if I say the Renaissance to people, you tell me about Michelangelo's David or uh, da Vinci's Mona Lisa, and of course, the climactic artistic creation of Raphael. But the fact is, the artistic phenomena are epiphenomena, that is to say they're outcomes of ideas. The reason that Michelangelo creates the huge David, which is different than Donatello's David of a half century earlier, the reason Raphael paints what he paints as compared to, say, uh, Giotto, 
Giotto paints the Madonnas, right, the early Madonnas, is because he has a different idea of what human beings are, of what nature is, of what history is. The ideas are the important thing about the Renaissance. The artistic work is the subsequent development of an idea. And what were the ideas that were so repercussive in the Renaissance? Well, the very name Renaissance indicates a rebirth. The rebirth of what? In some way, a rebirth of the ancient pagan world. We might call it a new old rebirth because it wasn't just paganism. It would become Christian paganism. But the fact is that it's a denial of what the medievals felt most important. For the medievals, the key issue was that culture should essentially be dominated by the church. So if I ask you to tell me about medieval culture and I say, tell me the most important buildings, you would point to Chartres or Notre Dame or Rouen, the great cathedrals. If I said to you, tell me about the most important thinker, you would tell me about Aquinas or Gregory. If I asked you to tell me about music, you'd tell me about Gregorian chants. If I asked you to tell me about painting, you'd tell me about triptyches, altarpieces for churches, or various kinds of stained glass, or whatever might be a Christian subject for an illuminated manuscript. Now, however, when culture starts to be reconsidered, not as a transcendental, but as an imminent phenomena, not as an otherworldly, but as a worldly phenomena, tied into the natural cycle, the ideas change. So, for example, if you think of medieval art, and you see it right away, for example, compare uh, a Michelangelo to any medieval sculpture. What do you notice Michelangelo has, his sculptures have, that medieval sculptures don't have? Oh, you're in California. You have to tell me something else. Musculature. Good, musculature. There's a lady who knows something about the history of art. Muscles, right? Muscles. No medieval people have muscles, because people in the Middle Ages are not interested in muscles. In the Renaissance, they're interested in muscles in the world and nature. In the medieval age, they're interested in just giving you an outline of a figure because they're interested in his salvation. If you look at medieval painting, what's always the background of the painting? Have any of you been to a museum? You see gold in the background. The gold is to do what? To tell you to think of heaven. When you look at a Renaissance painting, what do you see? See, nature, the most famous instance of that, of course, is in da Vinci's uh, Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is usually thought of as famous for her smile or his smile. There's a theory it's uh, Mona Lisa is uh, da Vinci's boyfriend. But the fact is that uh, the important thing about the Mona Lisa is the fact that if you look through the picture, you see behind it grass and streams. You don't see that for a thousand years in a painting. The fact is that we're situated in the natural order, we're situated in the world of nature, we're situated in time and space. Now, this means that culture represents all kinds of new ideas. The church is losing its grip on the cultural formation. It's losing its grip on the cultural creativity. The hegemony of Christian theology is breaking down. And this is what I would call the laicization of culture. Laicization means the process by which the laity become the cultural elites and lay subjects. Laity means the non-clay codish, the non-religious subject. Right? The laity is in a synagogue, the community as compared to the rabbi. In a church, the community as compared to the priest, the laity. So the laicization of culture means that culture starts to become non-Christian. Now you see immediately when culture becomes non-Christian, it opens itself up to Jews in a new way. Just to telescope this, because we don't have sufficient time to trace it sort of century by century, just think of 20th century culture for a moment. 
If I asked, when America was honored by the Nobel Committee in uh, 1976 for the 200th anniversary of the United States, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature? Anybody know? It was Bellow, Saul Bellow, who worked for me for the last 10 years and uh, was a very interesting character. And Saul Bellow uh, wrote what? Saul Bellow wrote about Herzog. Have you all read Bellow's books? He wrote Herzog, he wrote Augie March. He always writes, uh, his last book was Ravelstein, which is a sort of a, something of a character of the great uh, Alan Bloom of the University of Chicago. The fact is, what does he write about? He writes about neurotic Jews. Right? He writes about neurotic Jews, especially neurotic Jewish men like himself, who have sexual problems, and they're always worried about all kinds of erotic things. This is what they gave the Nobel Prize to, is the greatest form of American culture, a Jew writing about neurotic Jews. Can you imagine it if you've read uh, uh, Dante? So you see, the phenomenon of cultural laicization lets Jews in. If I ask you to name the most famous architect of our time, it's... Frank Geary, who's a Jewish boy, despite his name. If I ask you to tell me about sculpture, Lipschitz and Epstein, right? Jewish boys. If I ask you to tell me about music, you learn, oh, it's very good. So you'd see what happens. The world changes and lets the Jews in. The Jews, but Malas, all of them, it doesn't matter. You have here a phenomenon which you never had, you couldn't have in a medieval world. So first of all, you have a revolution of the laicization of culture. Secondly, <clears throat> you have a dramatic change, of course, in the 15th and beginning of the 16th century in the Reformation. The Reformation that Luther comes and breaks the hegemony of the Catholic Church introduces something very important for us. On the one hand, Luther is a rabid medieval anti-Semite. He was an Augustinian monk to begin with. He holds all kinds of very negative views of Jews. When he starts his career, he writes a couple of positive pamphlets about the Jews. He writes a famous pamphlet called Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. And in it, he says, if I were treated like the Jews, I also wouldn't be interested in Christianity. And he thinks that if he comes to the Jews with a positive, you know, sort of carrot rather than a stick, the Jews will convert to Christianity. They, of course, they don't. And he becomes a rabid anti-Semite in 1542-43. He publishes two infamous pamphlets on the Shem HaMaforash and on the Jews and their lies. And he tests terrible things about the Jews and usury and uh, their religious obstinacy, all kinds of medieval stuff. But what's interesting for us, right, as Jews, what's interesting for us is that Luther breaks the hegemony of Catholicism. Now, what does that mean? From the conversion of Constantine in the beginning of the fourth century, when he makes Christianity a illicit religion in the empire, Right? In 312, he sees the sign in the sky in hoc signo vincis. In this sign, you will conquer. And then he converts to Christianity, converts the empire to Christianity. Till Luther's famous uh, 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in the beginning of the 16th century, you have 1,200 years. For 1,200 years, there was one official religion in Europe, Catholicism. They didn't call it Catholicism. They called it Christianity. If you were not a Christian meaning of the Catholic form, you were a heretic or you were an outsider, you were a Jew or a Muslim. If you were a Christian heretic, you were subject to all kinds of penalties and all kinds of subjugation. And in the 13th century, as you know, they create the Inquisition to fight the Christian heretics in southern France, the Cathars, the Albigensians. In that world, there's only one legitimate religion. 
Now something dramatic is going to happen. We are going to be the beneficiaries of Christian struggle. When Luther comes and makes the Reformation, he breaks with the Catholic Church. The princes of Northern Europe, for their own interests, support him. And after religious wars that go on roughly 100 years, right? You all know about the 30 Years' War from 1518 to 1548, and then the 100 Years' War. The end of the 100 Years' War in 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, they make a deal. They say, you know, the Catholics can't destroy the Protestants, and the Protestants can't destroy the Catholics. So what should we do? Whatever the religion of the prince can be the religion of the people, and we can have a divided Europe in terms of religious identity. Now, that may seem irrelevant to us as Jews, but it's not for this reason. In a world where there's only Catholicism, one religion, the principle of religion is monopoly. You must be a member of the monopoly religion, the one dominant religion. If you're not, you're in deep trouble. When Protestantism comes and creates two legitimate religions in Europe, it ends the idea that society cannot sustain itself when everyone is not of the same religion. That's a deep idea, right? You have introduced the idea of religious pluralism. That's not your ambition, but that's the iatrogenic consequence. The unintended consequence of Protestantism is to create two religions that are both legitimate. Now just think to yourself, if you're a thinker, a Christian thinker, and you say, gee, you know, Europe can survive, a society can survive with two religions, it doesn't take you, even if you don't have a Yiddish cup, to realize that it would survive if you had three religions, or if you had four religions, or if you had no religions. Spinoza already grasped that very clearly in his Tractatus Theologicus Politicus in the 1640s, right? And Montesquieu starts to grasp it a little later. Locke gets it in the... Grotius gets it. All of these great modern thinkers get it. They understand that you don't need to have a religiously dominated monopoly religion. That's very important. That lets us in again. So we're let in by cultural transformations. And now slowly, slowly, we'll talk about this in more detail in the next lecture. We talk about the Enlightenment and Jewish emancipation. But the prequel, the the presupposition of Enlightenment and emancipation is this idea of religious pluralism, religious toleration. And you all know this is the idea that they talked about in Europe in the, in the advanced circles. And where was it instituted? In the United States. The United States was the laboratory for these ideas. So when Jews came to America in 1654 and they said to Peter Stuyvesant, we want to stay in New York, he was an anti-Semite, but the Jews used their influence with the stockholders. They owned stock in the company in Amsterdam. They stayed. And then they went to him and they said, we want to build a synagogue. We want to build a cemetery. He said, you shouldn't be here, but go ahead, go build it, right? And that's how we got to be uh, Americans. So the fact is that you see a second revolution occurred, a cultural revolution and a religious revolution. The third revolution that occurred was a political revolution. And this, of course, was extraordinarily important. I go back to the medieval feudal uh, arrangement. In the medieval world, everybody was who they were by virtue of the group to which they belonged. That is to say, if you were a Christian, then you had a certain place in the social order depending on which group of Christians you belonged to. If you were born of the aristocracy, if you were a king or a child of a king, then you had your definition by virtue of that fact, right? You had all kinds of privileges, very little restraints, 
in some places you even uh, had the right to do all kinds of things that we would consider wicked because you were a king. If you were a member of the aristocracy, again, you had all sorts of privileges. By virtue of your birth, you were born a lord or lady of the manor, and you could do various things. In the middle of the social order were the guilds, the tradesmen. If you go into Europe and old places, you'll see often signs. So you'll have the trade union of the cheesemakers. And that was usually a hereditary thing in the sense that if a man was a cheesemaker, his son was a cheesemaker. If a man was a tailor, his son was a tailor. If a man was a vintner, his son was a vintner, right? Made wine. And you didn't change position. Now, again, you had certain privileges and certain obligations, and you stayed there. That's where you were. And somewhere in the middle of the social order were the Jews. I put them in the middle of the social order because they have more rights, actually, than the serfs, the people at the bottom of the pyramid, and they live in cities. Jews don't live, essentially, in the countryside like the peasant. We'll come back to the Jews. But let me just say that Jews are defined as Jews. They cannot do certain things because they're Jews. They cannot move because they're Jews. They cannot enter the guilds because they're Jews. They're Jews, they're Jews. The best example of this, perhaps the clearest I can give you, simple, is the Rambam. You know, the Rambam is a very great, Maimonides, a very great figure, right? You all know Maimonides, the greatest Jew of the Middle Ages. He was recognized as a great man by the Muslims. It's not that they denied his greatness nor by the Christians. There's a tradition that when John, King Richard, came to fight the first crusade, the second crusade, third crusade, the third crusade with Saladin, he sent an emissary to Maimonides that he should come be the physician to the court in England. He was better. The weather was better in Egypt. He stayed in Egypt. But the fact is that Saladin recognized his genius. He made him the physician to his prime minister. So Maimonides was an influential figure at the court great man in Egypt. He was the head of the Jewish community. Yet, if you read his letter to his disciple who wants to come and study with him, it says, don't come. I get up early, early in the morning, and I get on my donkey and I ride to the court. And then after I see all these different people in the harem and the wives and so on, I get back on my donkey and I drew back to Old Fustat, the old Jewish quarter of Cairo. Now, notice what it says. It says he gets on his donkey. Now, surely it would have been easier for him to get on a horse, not to say a Hummer. But the fact is that he couldn't get on a horse because he was a Jew. And Jews were not allowed to ride horses. They could only ride donkeys. And he could have saved a lot of time if he lived near to the palace. But he didn't live near the palace because he was a Jew. And he wore special clothes because he was a Jew, honey-colored robes because Jews had to wear yellow clothing. That's where the yellow badge comes in Christianity. It comes from Islam. Maimonides was trapped. No matter what he did, he was a Jew. The only way he could get out of that was by conversion. And then there were, of course, the serfs. The serfs were almost like hereditary slaves. They couldn't learn to read and write. They couldn't leave if they were in the estate of one noble. They couldn't decide they want to go live in the estate of another noble or go somewhere else. Everything about their life was tied to a very rigid circumstance. And in many places, there was even that terrible custom that the lord of the manor under whom they lived had to write to sleep with their bride on the first night. Right? Today, it happens before. <laughs> so the fact is that this phenomenon of hierarchy, of being locked into the social order, is very profound. 
Now notice what happens in the political revolution of modernity. First of all, and here of course, I telescope a long development. Kings essentially disappear. 1649, the King of England has his head cut off. Later, 1789, the King of France has his head cut off. Finally, in 1917, the Tsar has his head cut off. They lose their heads. That's symptomatic of a fundamental change. Kings become irrelevant. Instead of kings, we start to have democracies. We start to have political arrangements which are republican rather than monarchical. The only kings that are left essentially are figureheads, are, you know, sort of like in England where the king and queen of England are kind of Disneyland. You go to England to see them with their dress and with their, their big funny hats of the soldiers and their dysfunctional families, right? It's what the kings do today. The aristocracy also becomes irrelevant. Why? Because the economic life changes as well as the political life. Instead of living like parasites off income from the land and other people's work, they lose all of those privileges in Republican societies, and they only sustain themselves by marrying Jewish women, right? So you see a lot of the aristocratic families in Europe sustain themselves by marrying into Jewish banking families. The most famous is the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds allowed their daughters to marry Gentiles, their sons not. And the first Jew Rothschild to marry a Gentile was uh, the Rothschild in Paris in the last generation. And then his wife, in thanks for that, bought an El Greco with his money and gave it to the church. Now, the fact is that this phenomenon of aristocrats disappearing, part of the Republican transformation. The guilds disappear, right? We don't have guilds. We start to, we later on have labor unions, but the control of the economic life of the cities by special interests disappear in modern capitalist society. And the capitalist society is very important. The capitalist society is not based on land. It's based on cash, fundamental transformation. So accompanying the political transformation is the economic transformation. The capitalism replaces feudalism. Cash replaces land. Cash, as the old saying is, coins around. Why? Because they can roll to anybody, even to Jews. And knowing how to work in a capitalist society advantaged Jews, because Jews were numerate and literate. Already in the Middle Ages, we were bankers, we were, knew how to discount notes, we knew how to trade foreign currency, we knew how to deal with money. Usury gave us a legacy of knowing how to use money. So as the cities changed, the capitalism came to replace feudalism, the guilds went out of business, that was all to our advantage. The last transformation that occurs in this social order, political order, is that serfs disappear. Why do serfs disappear? Because capitalism doesn't need serf, it needs workers. So capitalism destroys the political order and says we've got to take the workers from the serfs, right? Or change the serfs into workers. We have to take them off the land, bring them into the city, and exploit them as workers rather than as serfs. So the fact is that we've now changed. Now notice what's happened in the last few minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Kings have disappeared and their hierarchical place has disappeared. Aristocracy has disappeared, and their hierarchical place has disappeared. The middle of the guilds and the middle class have disappeared and been replaced. The serfs have disappeared. Now look at the Jews. The Jews are in the social order, of course, in the medieval period. But take note of what I've just done. This is what happened to Jews in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. They didn't do anything. They just survived. But something remarkable happened around them. The Gentiles changed. The Gentile world of which they were a part broke down. 
completely broke down. The whole medieval idea that society is the body of Christ, Corpus Christi as it was called, broke down. And of course, as you know, the breakdown had enormous consequences. For example, the witch craze, which you're all familiar with. The witch craze was the explanation among Christians about why Christian civilization broke down. They couldn't explain it by capitalism like I just did, or new ideas of in freedom and so on. They explained it as the work of the devil. And who was the agent of the devil par excellence? Old women. Women. Why women? Why old women? Older women. You know the image of the old woman? Because the, old, the image is that women are, even older women still have sexual drives. No one will satisfy the drives. The devil will satisfy the drives if they become his servants. They do that at witches' Sabbaths, right? Sabbaths, the connection with Jews. They have relations with the devil. As a result of that, they become his subordinate. What is the object of the devil? To destroy Christianity. The women try to destroy Christianity. In a good Christian society, what happens? Women are not free like old women. So in a good Christian society, women are first daughters and under the control of their fathers. Then they are passed, literally passed from their fathers to their husbands, who are they subordinate to. Then if they're independent, they are subordinate to the church as nuns, or they live in the house where they're subordinate to the master. Now all of that is breaking down, and we're getting independent women, we're getting women who live by themselves. It's a very dangerous thing, gentlemen. So the fact is that, you know, Ari was telling me this is just a terrible phenomenon. So the, the, the fact is that uh, the notion of society under attack by the devil, society under attack by his minions, these independent women, society under attack by Jews, society under attack by heretics. But society changes, under attack or not. The attack is successful and the society changes. The Gentiles change. Now notice what happened to the Jews. Jews haven't done a thing, right? The Jews didn't make the cultural revolution. You can study the Renaissance and you'll find out in the Renaissance, Jews had a very interesting time and they did interesting things, and they became translators of importance, and they wrote some books in a kind of Renaissance style like the Dialogia de Amore of uh, Leone Abreu, and they did uh, certain kinds of Neoplatonic philosophy, and they studied medicine in the universities for the first time, getting actually getting degrees in Pisa and Padua, but they're minor. If you go to Italy and you study the Renaissance, you can study for 100 years, you never come across a Jewish artist. Right? There's no Jewish Michelangelo, no Jewish uh, Raphael. They were minor, minor players. In the Reformation, the same. But the Jews change anyway. Why? Because their world around them has changed. Think of this room for a moment. Right? We're in an enclosed space. Think of this as the ghetto. All the Jews are living together, just like we are in this room. And all around us are boundaries. But then just think, and we're having lunch, we're having this lecture, and almost imperceptibly, someone comes along and he takes that wall away, the king, he takes it away. And then someone else comes along and he takes that wall away, the aristocracy. And then someone comes along and he takes this wall away, the serfs. And someone comes along and takes this wall away, the church and the guilds. What would happen? We, who haven't done a thing but eaten lunch, as you all are, would all of a sudden discover an hour later that your whole world had changed. Now you're boxed in by walls, and all of a sudden you're not boxed in by walls anymore. You have new opportunities. That's what happened to the Jewish people in modernity. 
Slowly, <coughs> the walls that enclosed the Jewish people broke down, and the Jews were able to enter into a new social order. And the social order that was coming into being had the characteristics I began to describe earlier of lay community, religious pluralism, capitalism. It's a remarkable change. Now, in addition, you have uh, phenomena in the Jewish world that are important. First of all, the Jews are on the move in early modernity. If you take a map of medieval Jewry, you see that the majority of medieval Jews are in Muslim societies across from Morocco to, uh, let's say, Afghanistan, that whole area through the Middle East. That's the majority of Jewish population. Slowly, in the late Middle Ages, Jews are increasingly moving to Europe, Christian Europe, because of economic opportunities. But essentially, there are no Jews past Czechoslovakia. What we think of as Eastern European Jewry, that is, say, Poland, Lithuania, the borderlands that became the Pale of the Settlement along the Russian, the Tsarist border, uh, those were not places of Jewish settlement. Again, there were no Jews in England, because they'd been expelled from England in 1290. And after 1492, there were no Jews in Spain, though that had been the largest center in the Middle Ages. Portugal, 1497, though that had been a sizable community. The Jewish community's on the move. Where are they moving to? Well, they're moving in interesting directions. That's not an exact map, but it's Europe. <laughs> Spain and Portugal, where they had the largest communities, no Jews. France has a small community. Germany, small community. But where are the Jews of Spain and Portugal going to? They're not going to France and Germany. They're starting a, an underground migration to England that will culminate in the liberation of the readmission of Jews, the effort to readmit Jews by Cromwell in the 1640s. He won't succeed, but he'll wink, he'll let the Jews back in. Then they come up here to Antwerp, Belgium, and Amsterdam. And the Protestants let them in. You all know that's the community of Spinoza, that's the community of Menashe in Israel, the famous rabbi. They go to the east and the Various city-states of Italy, including the Papal States, let them in. And this is the creation of all those famous small Jewish communities in northern Europe, in northern Italy. If you go to northern Italy, it's really fascinating to go to Padua, Venice. Uh, where does Shakespeare and uh, Juliet live? Uh, Verona. Verona. Thank you. Uh, all of the Ferrara. All of these places have old synagogues and old cemeteries. The Jews come in the Renaissance period of the 16th century and settle there and are accepted. This is Lithuania. This is Poland. This is the Near East and the land of Israel. Where do they go? They continue their migration east. They come to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire welcomes them. The Ottoman Empire is a new empire. Suleiman the Great, whose name you all know, starts the Ottoman Empire officially in 1517. He was a friend, in a sense, to the Jews. He wanted their capital. He wanted their experience. He wanted their skills. <laughs> he lets the Jews in. The famous Donna Gracia, the famous woman who organizes the blockade in Italy and so on, goes to live there, wealthiest woman in the world, Jewish woman in the world. The Jews go in hundreds of thousands to the Ottoman Empire. As part of the trip to the Ottoman Empire, some also go to the land of Israel, and they settle in Sfat, which is the subject of another discussion about the beginnings of modern Jewish ideas of mystical messianism and so on. 
And then they also go now into Poland. Why do they go to Poland? Because in the 16th century, the kings of Poland, like the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, is wise enough to know that they bring skills. In a country where you have a very, very depressed economy, 16th century Poland, uh, in the 16th century where you have a Poland that is desperately poor, desperately underprivileged. I think the only economy in the 16th century, something like the 20th century, people putting pickles in jars. The fact is that the Jews were very, very welcome. They brought skills. And you have to remember the Jews were very, very prominent in the international trade. From the Middle Ages, they were called Radonites, the name of a city in France. They were called Radonites, and they used to travel all the way to China. Marco Polo's journey was made by many Jewish travelers. That's why there were Jews in India. Have all of you been to India, to the Jews of Cochin in the south, south of Bombay, or Jews in Afghanistan, or Jews in China? Uh, you have the Jews of Kaifeng that lasted until the end of the 19th century. Uh, and the tradition is that Zhou Enlai came from that community. But the fact is that this phenomenon of Jews as traders, Jews connected with wealth, Jews in the international trade. You see this also in Shakespeare. Remember in Shylock, what is he waiting for? He's waiting for ships to come in. Remember, he's in the international trade. So the fact is that Jews are on the move everywhere. So they're moving east and they're coming to Poland. The kings of Poland welcome them. There are three father, son, and grandson, Sigismund I, Sigismund II, Sigismund III. They let the Jews in. There's even when you go to Krakow, there are all the restaurants are named Esther because they had a Jewish girlfriend named Esther. So the fact is that this story, you see, is very interesting. Not only is society changing, but the Jews now are moving into places that will welcome them. They're not living passively in places anymore. They're moving to the Middle East, back to the land of Israel, the Ottoman Empire. They're moving to Italy. They're moving to Poland. We think of Poland as a necropolis, a place where Jews die. Right? That's our image after the Shoah, and it's a good image, it's a correct image. But in Jewish history, Poland is the original Golden of Medina. It's the original land of refuge that welcomes Jews. But even more significant historically, Jews don't stop in Amsterdam, and they don't stop in England. Remember, over here is a whole new world where Jews are coming. So, for example, I estimate, I may, may be a high estimate, but I estimate that perhaps one in five men who came to the New World in the 16th century were of Jewish origin. And the reason was that they were running away, of course, if they were from Spain and Portugal from the Inquisition. So for example, Teresa of Avila, the famous Catholic saint, do all of you know her name? She was from a Murano family. All her brothers ran away from the Inquisition and came to the New World. It's estimated that about a fifth of the crew of Columbus was Murano, including his translator. There is also the tradition that even Columbus was of Jewish origin. Uh, what's his name? Simon Wiesenthal wrote a book about that, and others have. That I don't think is true. I don't th certainly not for generations, anyway. But the fact is that the world of the Jews is on the move, and there are new opportunities for Jews. In addition, there are some other factors that I should point to to get us started in the conversation. You're going to have Jews in new places. And of course, ultimately, they're going to be in the, the most of all important places for Jews will be America, right? The American Jewish community today is the biggest community the world has ever seen of Jews, the wealthiest community they've ever seen, the most Jewishly involved in some way. It sounds funny, but you know, we have extraordinary creativity of Jews in America, libraries, schools, just here, right? 
Orange County, I think Ari told me $100 million was spent on these schools and this building. It's a remarkable commitment for a relatively small community. So the fact is that America, then they would go to South Africa, they would go to wherever they were welcome. Now, this phenomenon of movement is also accompanied by some other phenomenon of modernity that are opposite. You should know about. The first is population growth. Obviously, demography is an important factor all the time. How many Jews are we talking about? How many in the population, percentage? In medieval times, the Jewish populations were very small. Now, we don't have good numbers, of course. Nobody took hard census data. We don't have hard numbers. But we estimate that in the late Roman Empire, Jews were very numerous. My own great teacher, Salo Baron, thought that there were as many as 20% of the Eastern Empire, that means the land of Israel, Egypt, Syria, that area of the Eastern Roman Empire, 20% were Jewish. That was probably too high a number. And he thought 10% of the Roman Empire, about 6 million people out of 60 million, were Jews. It's a very high number. Even if he was wrong by a total of 100, uh, by half, right, that the numbers were half of that. It was 10% and 3 million, very large number of Jews. And that doesn't count the Jews who were in Babylonia and the Sasanian Empire and the Jews who were already in the East. Because of the rise of Christianity, because of a loss of political influence, because of disease, because of many things, the Jewish numbers declined. And it's probably the case that in medieval Europe, at no time were there more than 100,000 Jews, 100,000. In Muslim culture, there were hundreds of thousands, but at no time, I would say, until 1600s, were there a million Jews in the world in the medieval period. That's a small population spread out. Now, as you know, on the eve of the Holocaust, we were about 16 and a half million. So if in 1600 we were a million, and in 1939 we were 16 million, what does that tell you? That we were very, very dramatic in our growth. Today, when we see studies, though in fact there was a recent one, first one I've seen in many, many years, uh, that said the American Jewish community is growing a little bit. You may have seen that. It was a big story in the forward. But it was done by sociologists, so it's almost certainly incorrect. But the fact is that uh, we are shrinking, generally shrinking. In the modern world, in a, two generations ago, we were 6 million in America when America was a million, 100 million. We were 6%. Then we have a situation where America is now almost 300 million, and we're five and a quarter or five and a half million. So we've gone to a fraction of a percent, right? I forgot what it is, 1%, 2%, and declining. But in this period, the Jews are growing. Now, why do I call that to your attention? First of all, the numbers are obviously significant. How many Jews are there is significant. But another factor comes into play. In places where there were small Jewish communities, you now start to get big Jewish communities. In places where there were no Jewish communities, you start to get small and then medium-sized and big Jewish communities. Now, what does that do? That creates new social interactions. It also puts pressure in places there was no economic pressure, no cultural pressure. And that contributes to modern anti-Semitism. Places that had no Jews all of a sudden have a big Jewish population. Places where there was no Jewish competition, you would now get Jewish competition. So the growth of the Jewish population is a good thing because population growth usually has a certain dynamism culturally. But on the other hand, in terms of our interaction with our neighbors, we start to get resentment. We start to get pushing back. 
The Jews are now pushing in, the Gentiles are pushing back. So the story of modernity, and I introduce it here, is not just a story of a simple progress from the medieval ghetto to Orange County. In between, there's a dialectic of pressure and opportunity. There's openness and there's anti-Semitism. There are those who are philo-Semitic or pro-Jewish emancipation and those who are against it. And a lot of the opposition comes from this kind of growth of population. The other thing that happens is, as the breakdown of society occurs, and the economy changes from a feudal economy to a capitalist economy, culture and society and population and politics all move more and more centrally to cities. That seems, it may seem odd to you to mention that, but it's very important. In the medieval period, I would guess that 95% or more of all people in society were involved in what activity? Farming, producing food. Right? You couldn't go to Ralph's uh, supermarket and just buy what you want. In America, it's probably 1%, 2%, I don't know, very small population. In California, it's probably a little higher because you have a climate for agriculture. In the east, it's very small, almost non-existent except for dairy farming a little bit. In the Middle Ages, you had to grow the food. You had to preserve the food. Right? That's why you have corned beef, you have pastrami, you have herring of all these processes that would save food so that when the season ended, you would be able to eat between November and uh, February, March, whenever. Canning, jams, all these things came into being as a necessity. And people were involved. As technology grew in the modern period as well, people were reduced in their agricultural need. Capitalism, as I said, needed them as workers. People come into cities. Now you might say, so what? What does that have to do with Jews? What it has to do with Jews is this. When the modern world moves to cities, it gives Jews an advantage. Jews are city dwellers par excellence. In the Middle Ages, we lived in cities because we weren't allowed to own land. We were middlemen. We were not out on the farms. We were not agriculturalists. We were not uh, farmers. And as the cities become more and more important, the Jews gain advantage. Why did they gain advantage? Because in cities, especially in the capitalist order, being numerate and literate is an advantage. Knowing how to read, knowing how to write, means you know how to control economic factors, build companies, handle money. Also, as cities grow in importance, their cultural importance grows. So where are the great universities of the world? Usually in cities, right? Paris has a great university. London has a big university. Cambridge, Massachusetts, city. Boston has a big university. Cities have universities. They also have major newspapers. And as you know, Jews will become very prominent. In America, it's astonishing. If you look at the leader writers of almost every newspaper in America, you'll find out they're Jewish. It's a, it's a, they may write anti-Israel articles, but they're Jewish, right? You put on CNN, and you see at night the lead uh, host is Wolf Blitzer, who used to write for the Jerusalem Post, and uh, Paul Azan, a Jewish girl, uh, follows him, right? And then that's Larry King, I think, uh, in somewhere in that mix. It's, a, it's truly astonishing, right, that we control the media. Uh, the fact is, but don't tell, don't tell anyone. So the fact is, you see, that cities, cities become cultural powerhouses. To just telescope, but think of New York. You have the New York Stock Exchange. You have the New York Times. You have the major TV stations, right? All of the New York City. So if the city is where Jews are, then Jews are preeminent. So Goldman Sachs becomes Goldman Sachs. 
the New York Times becomes the New York Times, owned by a Jewish family, as you all know. The Washington Post, owned by the Shapiro family, right? C uh, CBS was started by a name Paley, who was a Jewish guy, though the name doesn't sound it. Jews get disproportionate influence in cities, modern cities. If um, culture, again, was agricultural, we would be marginal, because we're mar agriculturally marginal. But when culture is in cities and in productive intellectual pursuits, not physical pursuits, and culturally open to us like the city life is. So for example, in America, if you go from New York, you go to Chicago, you go to LA, these are where culture is. In between, say, the area from Chicago to Los Angeles is irrelevant. If Wyoming disappeared tomorrow, it'd take a week for CNN to find out, right? No, who cares? Who cares? North Dakota, who cares? Right? I mean, it's garnished. But if it happens in New York, it happens. If it happens in Chicago, it almost happens. If it happens in LA, almost. So the fact is, this is important to know. Now, the result of all this is that you have a really remarkable transformation in the entire universe of ideas, of culture, of politics, and economy. And there's one idea in particular I want to talk about and end with. It goes back to this collapsing uh, feudal arrangement. There will now be a corollary to the collapse. When you have a changing order, people are going to start to ask the following question. What about people who belong to those old arrangements, who are kings, who are aristocrats, who are the church, who are the serfs, who are the Jews? And they start to say, you know, maybe we should think of people as individuals. Now, this may seem odd to you, but the most repercussive of all the ideas today, for today's lecture, is this one. In the Middle Ages, there were no individuals. By that I mean, and this is related to what I said earlier, there was nobody who could escape their social and economic position. In the modern world, we start to say people are individuals. People can be separated from the group to which they belong. People can change their social status. People can get an education and in two generations go from Yiddish-speaking immigrants to owning Broadcom. The fact is that it is an amazing phenomenon. The idea of the individual is a modern Western European idea with no precedent in human history. Every society in the history of mankind previously was collective. Every society previously defined you by the group you belonged to. Every society gave privileges and limited you by your birth or by your connection. Now we start to get a new and radical idea, the idea of the individual. Now, as that bears on the Jews, it is enormously consequential because now society is going to make the following argument. You know, the Jews are bad. That never goes away. The Jews are bad. Why are the Jews bad? Because they're Jews. Judaism is ugly and dark and diabolical and superstitious and so on. But you know, we can take those people out of their Judaism and make them individuals. We can, in a sense, rescue their human potential and remake them as citizens. They don't have to stink from garlic. They can eat other food. They don't have to wear a, a gartel and a capata, <coughs> a black, <coughs> excuse me, a black garment. They can dress in Brooks Brothers clothing. They don't have to know only the Gemara and the Chumash. They can go to university and become educated 
in a useful way. The idea of the individual now emerges in general, and for the Jews in particular, it gives opportunity. And it makes Europe think about Jews in a new way, Jews as human potential. You're going to separate them from their Judaism, and you're going to remake them as communists, as Republicans, as whatever. And that idea is the culminating idea of all these other ideas, the idea that Jews can be individuals and separated from the community and made valuable. Now, that idea, of course, culminates in our time. Young people today are the most individualistic of ever. American society, the most individualistic of all, right? You don't have to belong to a group. You're not defined by a group. The census doesn't ask what religion you belong to. The universities don't look, close you out because of numerous clauses. The economy doesn't close you out. It's really quite extraordinary, the triumph of the idea of the individual. And that's what American law is all about. Right? We, now we have this whole debate about affirmative action because it seems to violate the spirit of that individualism. You have it here in California, particularly with Asians, because they're so gifted. The universities, whether there should be caps on the, the number of Asians at Berkeley or UCLA or, or wherever. But the fact is, this idea of the individual is a new idea. It comes from the modernity's struggle with itself and the collapse of the old ideas. Now here, ladies and gentlemen, something very interesting is a consequence of this. I've described the process of breakdown and creativity this afternoon. The breakdown of the old and the creative ideas that replaced it, laicization, capitalism, republicanism, individualism. Now, this, of course, was an extraordinary adventure. And I've made it relatively simple, and I've only had a few minutes to, to talk about a lot of things that took, of course, decades and centuries. But it did leave a residue of a very deep sort vis-a-vis -vis Jews and Judaism. In the Middle Ages, because of the hierarchy, the structure, the formalism, everything knew where it was, everybody knew who you were, what you were, where you were, there was no question about who the Jews were. The Jews were Christ killers. The Jews were diabolical. The Jews were children of another god, you might say. And they were treated as such. They had to live apart. Their place in the economy was limited. They couldn't intermarry with Gentiles, couldn't go to university. They couldn't be knighted, have certain offices. They couldn't have certain political rights. Everybody knew that was the story. In the modern period, because of all the breakdown we've talked about for the last hour, right, the whole world broke down. And the Jews were left. Remember, they're left in that place. Gentile society had to ask a new question. What question was that? What question do you think Gentile society had to ask? Excellent. Tov mode. What do we do with the Jews? For the first time in a thousand years, European society had to ask the question, what do we do with the Jews? See, before they knew what to do with the Jews. Now, for the first time in over a thousand years, they had to ask the question, what do we do with the Jews? And this, of course, is the question that occupies a central part of European consciousness for the last five or 600 years, and of course occupies Jewish consciousness. This is called the Jewish question, the Judenfrage. Now what happens is the Jewish question becomes a preeminent European question. Every major thinker, 
between the 16th century and Lenin in the 20th century, writes about the Jewish question. And they, of course, give different answers. The overwhelming majority, who are successfully influential, give a sympathetic answer of various kinds, which we'll talk about next time. But there's always a negative group, a group that says, you know, what we should do with the Jews is put them back in the ghetto. We should deny them rights. We shouldn't allow them into universities. Instead of emancipating them, we should disemancipate them. Instead of giving them rights, we should expel them. So that you have to understand that this is a very complicated story. What comes out of this whole deep penetration of new phenomena and its corrosive effects on the political, social, economic life of Europe is a question that Europe has to wrestle with. What are we going to do with the Jews? The Jewish question. Now, between 1500 and 1933, there were many answers, and we'll talk about them next time. All the things you know about modern Jewish history are, in a sense, answers to the Jewish question. Reform Judaism, conservative Judaism, neo-Orthodox Judaism, Hasidism, political emancipation, American rights given to Jews, all things, answers to the Jewish question. But then arose, in 1933, the ultimate negative answer, right? What did Hitler call his program? The endlosen de Judenfrage in Europa, the final solution to the Jewish problem in Europe. The final solution. What final solution? He said, you see, for 500 years, we Goyim have been duped by the Jews. That's the language of Mein Kampf. We've been duped. We Goyim, he says. We're Goyim. The Goyim have been duped by the Jews into allowing them to take over society. But I know better. You can't emancipate them. You can't liberate them. You can't socialize them. You can't change them. You can't make them teach, teach them a new language, a new code of dress, a new behavior. And why is that? Because the problem with Jews is not cultural, social. You get them to eat different food. You get them to eat different, uh, uh, eat differently, dress differently, speak differently. But their genes are corrupt and you can't change their genes. It's racial. That's the final solution. That's the genius, Hitler says, of his diagnosis. But you see, between the Renaissance and Reformation and Hitler, there's a big expanse where all these experiments are playing out. And for the most part, they're playing out positively. Certainly in Western Europe, in America, in Australia, in South Africa, Canada, very positively. But there's this tension always. There's always somebody who says no to the Jews. So the Jewish problem doesn't go away. And then after emancipation, modern anti-Semitism grows because Jews become even more public, more public, more influential, more dynamic, till we get the final solution. So the encounter of Jews in modernity, which is the subject of this uh, series of three lectures, is a very interesting and remarkable one. It also is where you all are. You're all the outcome. We are all the outcome of all these products. We are pluralist. We are individualistic. We are capitalists, we are Republicans in a land that gives us rights, right? But not altogether in a world where anti-Semitism has died. People are pushing back. The Muslim world now in particular, but you have it in Europe, you even have it in parts of America where you get on occasion uh, people like Pat Buchanan, right? So the fact is a very deep and interesting and ongoing problems. Thank you very much.